1: and our wonderful editor, Julia W.D. Harrison. Lynn Ponton and I, Jennifer Wong, are the executive producers.
0: I'm Lynn Ponton of Let's Talk About Sex with Lynn and Jen, inviting you to listen to a podcast, Unmask, two therapists talking about psychological issues during the time of COVID. Please join us on in-depth conversations about COVID issues during this very challenging time. Thanks for tuning in. Good morning. Uh, This is Lynn of Lynn and Jen uh, from the Let's Talk About Sex with Lynn and Jen. And today we're doing another Unmask. But it really kind of uh, is on the border, Jen, between uh, Let's Talk About Sex and Unmask. It's about an epidemic of sexual harassment and abuse related to the Bill's Cosby events. And that clearly is a sexual topic.
1: Yeah, I think definitely it's, it's a bridge and, and very much in the wheelhouse of our original kind of podcast category of talking about sex and how it intersects with our lives.
0: Well, maybe just to start out, we're a little bit uh, late, a week or two with this podcast. Uh, as Bill Cosby, as almost everyone knows in the world, was uh, allowed to leave prison Based on uh, a technicality that had occurred much earlier in his legal history, where he had an agreement in a civil case that if he disclosed his abuse of women, which he did, that he would not be prosecuted further. And uh, this is the the over overview. But there's questions about whether or not he really had that agreement. That's the first thing, and. And can such an agreement protect an abusing individual for all the crimes that they might commit in the world? You know, so that's another question really about it, because the testimony that put Bill Cosby in prison actually occurred years after this supposed agreement had taken place. So uh, it raised for both of us, Jen, uh, the question of really... How do these things work to protect abusers in in court settings? What can be done about it? And how does it relate to how women and others who've been abused feel about all of this?
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I think these are such important questions to ask. And to be frank, you know, I'm not super familiar with the legal system. So learning about this technicality and kind of putting together pieces and learning more about how, how all of it is set up, I think is really enlightening and important to understand. And I think the other piece that we really want to address is how it impacts people who are coming forward and disclosing about their abuse and seeking justice and how that really Uh, How that process works, you know a lot more about that, but I, I think also just really understanding how challenging the process is and how disheartening having a situation like this happen is for a lot of these people who the system... A lot of people, it it feels like it's already very stacked in favor of defending the people who are being accused rather than those who are coming forward to seek justice.
0: I uh, agree with what you're suggesting, Jen, that this is
1: really the way
0: many women experience it when they come forward with an abuse allegation or series of allegations they feel like the deck is stacked against them they don't want to come forward with their complaints, and they feel like they're going to be really accused of uh, of first off just coming forward with false complaints. I've worked in the legal system as you know an expert uh, really for more than 30 years you know working and looking at these issues of abuse and a couple of things you and I've shared this but A lot of the earlier research and on papers on children and girls and women shows that there are very low rates of false allegations of sexual abuse and that maybe three to five percent of the allegations are false when they're really put forward. But I think the legal system and the culture at large holds the idea that you know the uh, abuser, often a man, is innocent until proven guilty, whatever that means, and uh, that there's a, so there's the really the supposition of innocence on his part, in light, but not taking into account the fact that it's there's a great likelihood, if you look at the studies, especially if there's more than one person making the allegations that this abusive behavior really occurred. So the frame of the legal system, as we know it currently, really protects those men who are being accused of abuse and women, because there's a small number of women, but mostly men again. And I think that needs to be recognized. And I think it is by women who failed to come forward because only about 8% of all women who've been abused do come forward with these allegations. So I think women know this, but it's not talked about on all of the talk shows or the legal shows. And you hear about this with the Cosby case. What's the likelihood that these women were making false allegations? Almost none, you know, zero. And there are more than one. There were 30 plus. There you go, really looking at it. So I think it says, again, points to something has to change in our legal system. There has to be greater protection for women. And this information about the low rate of false allegations has to be out there from the very beginning.
1: Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I think building on that is this sense that, kind of, in the general narrative, is this idea that, you know, if we don't have this innocent till proven guilty aspect when it comes to the sexual allegations, that people would just kind of throw out these allegations all the time as a way to like gain power or like ruin somebody's life or something like that. And I think that really dismisses how difficult, how challenging the process of coming forward to uh to disclose about your own abuse and perceive, pursue legal action is for people. You know, even just going to report, you know, I that's something I hear a lot of the time That's kind of a a general pushback is like, well, if this happened to them, you know, why wouldn't they have disclosed it sooner? Why did they take so long? And all, all of that really doesn't take into account how much it takes for someone personally, but also how much of the way the system currently functions kind of interferes with people's ability to subject themselves to the process.
0: I, I really agree with that. You know, before the the our show started, we were talking with Soy Kim, who's one of our colleagues who sits in really with individuals who are being evaluated and come forward with abuse complaints. And I myself did that decades ago. That was my job in the first rape centers at, that were founded at my university in the 70s. And uh I found that I learned a great deal from that, just watching these women go through great effort to come forward in a legal system and voice their own complaints, and then I've had my own complaints in this area that I've had to follow through with, but really witnessing you know what it feels like for other women to go forward with it, the hours of time that it takes, the questions that are so individually personal and make you the guilt feel like the guilty person and blame you for the events that have taken place all of that that whole structure is very degrading for women and really in my own mind runs counter to justice and the law well
1: it's very it's very different than being heard being witnessed for what you have experienced right it it becomes something where you feel that you have to prove or defend what happened to you instead of being able to share what happened to you, which, you know, in a, in a traumatic situation itself has difficulties in, in even vocalizing what happened to you. I know a lot of the people that I worked with that were survivors of sexual abuse Just being able to vocalize their own experience was a huge part of the healing process, and it sometimes took quite a while to get to that point.
0: Yeah. This vocalization you're talking about, I think having a witness hear your story and validate it and support the telling of the story is so important. And in the the rape clinics, when you provide support as that witness, it's one of the most important roles to have somebody there with you going through all of it. So uh, I think that is a a role that's really greatly helpful. The, The intrusive questioning, the intrusive exams, you know, the assault on your body, the taking of your personal property and clothing, all of that, you know, works in the other direction, you know, but having a person hear your story and listen to it and accept it, that's that's incredible. Mm -hmm. It's incredibly supported.
1: And, And you talked about how, you know, some of the previous cases are sort of what led to these types of clinics being developed. And I'm hopeful that situations like the current Cosby situation will also lead us to kind of question some of the way these legal protections function. Yeah. I have over the decades...
0: Since the 70s, scene changes, I mean, I've worked with women who were abused during the 80s, for example, and they came forward and then they were still treated like the initiator of the abuse. And they still, you know, they were abused by teachers, being very young or other uh, individuals, and they suffered quite a bit of responsibility and blame for what happened to them. Um, so that is still, you know, in the minds of a lot of women out there, you know, the memory of that. It it is changing somewhat now in that there isn't an open attack on women when they come forward with these allegations. And I think that is because of me too and other things, that you know, other women have said this is all of us, you know. But there's still all of these laws, as we've seen with Cosby to protect the men and the whole structure is set up to believe them, to protect them, to question, you know, the woman who's coming forward with the story. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. What that brings up for me too, is a, a question I, I never asked before, but really like, why is there a statute of limitations, which refers to the fact that, you know, there, there is a time period in which you're allowed to pursue legal action after which, the certain time window it's considered non-valid you cannot bring forward your legal case and to me at the time I you know as I said I wasn't that uh, I wasn't that involved in the legal system at all and it was actually through my clients that I learned about a lot of these things and also my work with you Lynn but you know, it it really started to get me questioning, like, why is it that that this exists? Like, what purpose does it serve? And specifically, how does it what is the narrative? How does it paint a certain picture about the people that are coming forward?
0: Well, the statute of limitations is very interesting because uh, when it started out, you know, these cases, when I first started participating 40 years ago in them. The statute of limitations was there with every case. It was very hard to get a story through. And then you couldn't use as witnesses the children and the women from earlier cases because they wouldn't even allow them to testify. Right. Now you can at least have additional testimony from individuals whose statute of limitations has been dropped. So that's important. But uh, California... New York, a few of the states are beginning to question, should we even have statute of limitations? We're in a brief period here in California where it's open and there is no statute. So, And this, I believe, ends in two years. So again, we'll be back in the other situation. But just so our listeners know, Hundreds of people that I've listened to are coming forward with stories from the past. This is an extremely busy time. And these stories are of abuse that occurred in the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, the thousands. This is incredible. You know, and you see how long it takes children and you know, young people to come forward with abusive situations. So I don't believe there should be any statute of limitations. I think that they, they, this would protect the children. This other statute of limitations protects the abusers. That's the total design of this structure. And I think people would come forward more readily. If there were, was no statute of limitations in contrast to what they think, I think they'd be coming forward right away
1: with it. I think also people underestimate how confusing it can be for a person in these abusive situations where I know, you know, for particularly with incest cases that I have, you know, worked with some of the victims slash survivors of it really took getting away from the family before they could even start considering what happened to them. And then they have to deal with the processing of the trauma to really allow themselves to access sort of some of the memories and like what they mean and how they have impacted them and all of that. And I think, you know, for a lot of people that moving out doesn't even happen until earliest maybe like later adolescence and so it's really at that point where they're beginning their journey to even understand what happened to them and so the statute of limitations really limits the time frame in which even like they are going through their own process to make sense of what actually did happen to them and unlearning a lot of the grooming unlearning a lot of the beliefs that were instilled to make them believe that they are at fault for what happened to them and
0: you really speak to the you're so articulate
1: about the these cases that I think
0: are some of the hardest really for individuals to deal with the incest uh, how it impacts on families and if there is no opportunity because the statute has been dropped to really file a complaint uh, it really increases the power of abusers within family structures to continue to abuse their victims and abuse generation after generation. So multi generational abuse is reinforced by having the statute of limitations. And I've seen it now with grandfathers, great grandfathers abusing generation after generation and they could not be stopped. You know, and
1: individual voices lack power. And, and what you were saying right before that actually reminds me of something I've heard a lot of clients say who have pursued more of the legal action. Often they, they don't really want to go through the process for themselves. You know, they want to be able to close that chapter, kind of get away from it and, and move on, move through their life. A lot of the times, it's their concern about it happening to somebody else that motivates them. You know, this happened to me. It could definitely happen to somebody else. I wish somebody had done something. So I want to be that somebody who is doing something first. For, to protect other people from being abused. And also I think recognizing that a lot of the times, particularly going back to this Cosby case, for example, like it is a pattern, it's not a one-off thing. It's a, it's a pattern of abusive behavior.
0: Right, and the women who came forward, Jen, in the Cosby case, you know, whose statute of limitations had dropped, told their story to protect other women, to support the women who were there you know, in the initial case, but to protect generations from being abused. And, you know, I see Cosby going off to his his wealthy life after this, and I see more people really being abused. They're there. You know, it doesn't stop this pattern. If he's 80, 90, they continue to do this, you know, and uh, I think that has to be really understood and considered you know it's it's not a victory that this happens to somebody that they're let forward let go like right. this you know it's terrible they often will say well they don't abuse they you know as if they can't sexually enact things you know after they're 80 or 90 when we all know that so much of abuse is psychological, yes, you know, and that it takes place in an emotional setting and uh, a person like this can be incredibly abusive in later mm-hmm. generations. And I do see families who come forward, you know, who've been abused, they're worried their children or their nieces or nephews will be abused or their grandchildren. And they finally speak out against somebody in their own family.
1: And it, it's that. Secrecy that really protects the abusers a lot of the time. And so I think that's why it's so important that people who do come forward have support in being listened to and being heard and being validated in their experience. And so having situations, especially such high-profile as this, I'm glad that we're at least having this type of conversation and asking these questions. You know, it's really unfortunate that something like this happened. At this point, I don't know what can be done about like this specific scenario, but I think it's really important for us as a society to start really questioning how does this system function, who has designed it for what purposes and what can we do to support the people in really getting justice.
0: And that would be a wonderful consequence of all of this. That we could learn from this how to structure this better so that women's voices are believed, so that there's a more equal playing field when you go to the courts. And we really look at at situations like the Cosby situation where he gets off on a technicality and we work to end those situations. You know, we see it now with some of the uh, individuals in Trump's administration. That they're being given immunity to speak out for their crimes, and all of this, you know, really raises considerations, you know, about letting people like that walk free in our culture, whereas, you know, victims are really tormented when they come forward with mm-hmm. their stories.
1: And that sense of accountability versus immunity, you know, I, I think that is an important question to to address that doesn't have easy answers, but is, is a valuable discussion is really like, at what point are you complicit? And therefore, you know, it's important to be held accountable, but also, you know, you aren't the one doing the crime per se. And, and so what happens to the, those people? Is immunity really worse? Is it, what does it mean? I guess more the question is like, what does it mean if you allow people like that to have immunity in order to pursue someone else, in order to pursue justice on someone else? You know, and, and is that worth it for people?
0: It's, it's a hard one, Jen, because you see these individuals uh, admit terrible actions that they've engaged in. And you almost think about do they do a deal to get the immunity, right, just so they can get off, you know, and uh, they go free around this. And I I do I question that just like you question the statute of limitations. You know, these are actions that have to be addressed, you know, horrible actions that have to be addressed by justice and law, and uh, rape, uh, abuse, all of these things like murder, you know, there have to be consequences really for them. And if they're not, you know, it, it really eats away, I think, at our society completely. And we're seeing that. I think this is what's happening.
1: Well, it, it really erodes so got a lot that lot sense of justice, you know, like in in the pursuit <laughs> yeah. of justice. And, and so I, I think... I didn't mean to cut you off there. I just wanted to say, you know, that oh. <laughs> I think it really brings up a lot of questions when you when you see something that is so blatantly unjust happen. I think it, it it erodes a lot of that trust, the fragile kind of trust in the system. And so, what can we do as a society or even as individuals in order to build back the trust that like justice can really be served.
0: Yeah. And that's, I think, you know, we talk about our title of our podcast, Unmask. I think unmasking the sexual inequities that prevent, you know, our culture from being more balanced is really, really Mm. important. Um, So uh, with our listeners, I, I think this raises questions about working to end the statute of limitations around these areas, really looking at the protections or abusers uh, in all all parts of our lives, really. And all of us have a voice in that. And for those who are courageous enough to speak out within their families about uh, incest, uh, hats off to them. That takes a lot of
1: courage. Absolutely.
0: Well, always, Jen, it's interesting to talk to you. So uh, especially about this topic. So uh, I look forward to more discussions.
1: Sounds great. Me too, Lynn.
0: Take care. Bye-bye.